Welcome to Inside Groove, the only motorsports show where supermodifieds are king, methanol is aromatic, and the drivers carry their balls in a bag. Inside Groove is powered by IPC Indy, creating performance parts and solutions for the automotive, aerospace, and communications industries. Here's your host and fellow superholic, Tom Baker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inside Groove Season Rewind. My name is Tom Baker, and it is great to be back with you for another episode where we are looking back at each race week of the 1972 racing season at the Oswego Speedway. This episode is going to focus on race number five. We have program number six set to go here. We're going to be looking through the sixth Oswego Speedway Eagle program of the season. And we're going to discuss what took place the week prior, which is week number five of racing action at the Oswego Speedway. Of course, uh, Oswego Speedway, the home of the supermodifieds and Thinking about 50, almost 51 years ago now, as we get ready to start the 2023 racing season, um, just so much going on in 1972. As we talk about each episode, this is a look back at a very transitory period of time in Oswego Speedway and Supermodified Racing. You had roadsters, you had uprights, you had rear engine cars, you had a couple of four-wheel drive cars that had competed at the Oswego Speedway, Uh, just all kinds of different machinery. You had drivers from the Midwest, drivers from New England, drivers from Canada, drivers from uh, the the Northeast region, New York, Pennsylvania, that type of uh, thing. And week number five of 1972 saw one of the Canadian competitors shine. Storm and Norman Mackrath in the Hagen Howard number 40 was the driver who picked up the feature win in 1972 uh, on week number five. And this was a week when people literally were freezing their lug nuts off, right? <laughs> Record-breaking low temperatures on that week in 1972. Uh, But again, sometimes colder temperatures bring hotter racing because the engines are breathing better. The obviously the drivers weren't going to (laughs) overheat that night. Um, You know, it just, it feels like sometimes the racing is a little better when the weather is a little bit colder, but uh, it sounded like, on this date in 1972, uh, it was a little bit extreme, shall we say. So if this is the first time you're hearing one of these season rewind shows, we literally take the program and just read through it. Just kind of looking back and remembering what was going on when this program was being sold at the racetrack on that particular race night. And of course, each program recapped the racing action from the week before, and we kind of hit the highlights. We don't read every article. We don't, you know, focus on uh, a, a super deep dive, but um, we're hitting highlights here. So let's start with the recap from week number five of Oswego Speedway action in 1972. Headline, Macrith outshines classy field. 
Fans who braved the record-breaking low temperatures to attend last Saturday night's racing program were rewarded with some of the finest races recorded so far this season, especially the big 45-lap feature event in which Norm Mackrath of Mississauga, Ontario, overcame a late-race surge by Jimmy Champagne to get the big $1,500 win. Now, again, think about $1,500 in 1972. For Mackerth, it was his initial feature victory of the season, and for that matter, he became the first Canadian entry to record a triumph so far this year. When the green flag came down, there was the usual mad scramble for position. Ken Andrews in the 55 and Doug Sire in the 72 charged from their starting spots to take first and second place early in the event. Behind them, a huge battle erupted, among Jim Winks, Jim Cheney, Kempton Dates, Fred Graves, Don McLaren, Norm Mackrath, Jim Champagne, Baldy Baker, and Johnny Logan. Doesn't that sound to you like an all-star race just in and of itself? I continue. Mackrath threaded his way through traffic, making some brilliant moves to assume the number three spot. Laps later, he charged by fellow Canadian Sire for second and went on to do battle with another fellow Canadian, Kenny Andrews, for the race lead. Lap after lap, Ken came up with every trick to keep his orange 55 ahead of the Hot Wheels car 40 of Norm Mackerth. Remember the hot pink wheels on that car. Finally, on lap 18, Mackerth slipped under Andrews between turns three and four and began opening up a fine lead on the rest of the field. Andrews held on for second, but had all the competition he could handle. It was the 55, the eight ball, the 72, the 7, the 19, the 28, the 37, the 5, and the 93, all fighting away for that number two spot. Andrews looked to be running a perfect groove, but on lap 35, Champagne ducked underneath, coming off turn two to take over second. He then set sail for leader Macrath, and each lap he closed in on the 40. With two laps to go, Jimmy had pulled to a car length, Behind Norm, but the 40 was just running too strong, and Jimmy really made no serious challenge. Down to the checkered flag came Stormin Norman Mackrath with his Hagen Howard Chevy, a good two car lengths ahead of the eight ball of Jimmy Champagne of Clay, New York. Kenny Andrews put down every challenge to take a fine third place with his 55, with former feature winner Baldy Baker taking fourth spot with a blue 93. Rounding out the top five was Michigan ace Johnny Logan with a Max Dowker special, car number seven. The rest of the feature finishers in order were finishing sixth, the 72 of Doug Sire, finishing seventh, the 28 of Kemp Dates, finishing eighth, the 37 of Freddie Graves, finishing ninth, the flying five of Don McLaren, finishing 10th, the 19 of Jim Cheney, Finishing 11th, the 59 of Jimmy Winks. Finishing 12th, the 74 of Bob Seelman. Finishing 13th, the number 90 of Ronnie Wallace. Finishing 14th, the number 23, Jim Muldoon. Finishing 15th, the 36 of Ronnie Buckner. Finishing 16th, the number 96 of Den Wheeler. Finishing 17th, the number 80 of Ron Madison. Finishing 18th. The 04 of Lou Dabrowski. Finishing 19th, the number 67 of Ralph Denson. Finishing 20th, the 30 of Slammin' Sammy Carista. Finishing 21st, the 66 of Red Barnhart. Finishing 22nd, the 87 of Bruce Kraft. 
23rd was the number one of Johnny Burkholder. And rounding out the finishing order in 24th spot, the number 17 of Bertie Graham. The heat races were won by Norm Mackrath, Baldy Baker, and Jimmy Champagne, with the semifinal victories going to Kenny Andrews and Doug Sire. The consolation race was won by Johnny Logan. And that's how it happened. Week number five at the Oswego Speedway. We now continue with more from program number six. And this, of course, had Baldy Baker in the 93 on the cover. We could spend a whole entire show talking about the Miles Barker Wiseman number 93 that Baldy was driving at that point. Uh, but we will continue reading through the program. Here is Ivor the Driver Reports, always my favorite part of any Eagle program. Here we go. What a fantastic feature last Saturday. Anyone who finished in the top 10 should be proud. You really had to run in order to do it. That Norm Macrath is really flying. If he keeps it together, he could win a string. We were very impressed with Brian Osgood's new 09. Taking it right off the trailer, he turned a 20-second lap. Then a fuel injection belt broke, so he was sidelined. Osgood has a timed fuel injection setup, which squirts fuel into the cylinders on ignition. Supposed to give you 80 more horsepower. It sits inside the cockpit has a price tag of $1,000. Someone asked Nick Rowe how he felt after his accident. He replied, hell, I've come out of bars in worse shape than this. <laughs> Nick did break his nose in the accident, which could have been a lot worse. Ron Pern, who made his inauspicious debut at Oswego, says in spite of that accident, he likes the big O, wants to come back. Now, We'll talk about Ron in a minute. We were really impressed with Johnny Logan in the Max Dowker number seven. He got a well-earned fifth after starting in the rear. The latest word on Buck Buckley is that he has purchased a Holinsky frame and is putting all the goodies on it now, and he will be here in several weeks. With Buckley's new car and John Casey's number 88, it will make four Holinsky cars at Oswego. The other two, of course, were Jim Cheney's number 19 and the 66, driven by Red Barnhart. Look for Warren Conium in the 04 tonight. Bob Stelter hopefully will get a chance to try the 10 pins this week. Mechanical problems prevented from taking a single lap last week. Now, Ivers' predictions for the week, the sixth feature of the season... One, Jimmy Champagne. Two, Norm Macker. Three, Baldy Baker. Four, Kenny Andrews. And five, Bobby Stelter. So he was quite optimistic, or bullish, as we would say, on Bobby's chances in the 10 pins. I don't know that Bob ever had a top five in the 10. Um, and incidentally, he did get the winner right, because if you'll recall, we actually kind of jumped out of order here. We didn't have the program for this particular show um, until after we recorded the program or the race number six look back. And that was the one where Jimmy won by a full lap. He lapped the field. Incredible. So I ever got that one right. A word from the editor. Tonight is championship night here at the Big O. 
A big 75-lap main event, trophies for all race winners, presenting the hardware to the drivers, will be champions from another sport. The Eastern Hockey League Northern Division champions, the Syracuse Blazers, Coach Ron Ingram, General Manager Bill Charles, and several of the outstanding 71-72 players will be on hand tonight. Now, there's a good idea, if you think about it. Why couldn't Oswego Speedway do the exact same thing again maybe with what do they call the Syracuse hockey team now is it still the crunch just thinking many of you are wondering why Delaware Speedway has switched to running Saturday nights I spoke with track owner Jack Greedy this past week and he explained to me that the field of super modifieds 20 for this season has been very poor averaging 12 to 13 cars on Friday nights By switching to Saturday nights, he can bring in the popular late model stocks that are now running Cayuga Speedway on Fridays. He will also run the Supers on Saturday nights, provided that he can maintain a decent field. Right now, there are only several cars that run both tracks, and it remains to be seen where these cars will go. Granted, with Delaware running Saturdays, we will lose a few cars, but there are more new cars showing up at Oswego each week, and we know of at least six to eight more due any time. Hopefully, we will be able to maintain a 40-car field. Let me read that sentence again. Hopefully, we will be able to maintain a 40-car field. Can you imagine? In 1972, 40-car weekly fields. Similar to the one we had last week. There are no hard feelings between Delaware and Oswego over this change. Mr. Greedy knows what he has to do to keep his track progressing, and I'm sure he wouldn't try to hurt the super-modified class, which he has been a part of as a competitor for many years. Moving on to John Hill's Racing Highlights column. The dictionary defines superstition as an irrational, adject attitude of mind toward the supernatural nature or God resulting from superstitious beliefs or fears. What a way to start a column, huh? Here's why. Almost every one of us practices it to varying degrees sometime in life. Race drivers do even more so. For many of them, live on the very edge of life, trusting their skill, their judgment, and their equipment to stay alive and unhurt and yet win. Hence, they are naturals for superstition. Of course, the most well-known taboo in auto racing for years was the color green, supposedly starting with Barney Oldfield and his poor luck with green race cars. Years ago, one popular driver was said to have yanked a piece of green wiring violently from his racer, and threatened bodily harm on its mechanic if such a color ever turned up again. (laughs) And there have been some racers who have flaunted the green taboo by driving green cars with the number 13 and even sporting black, uh, black cats emblazoned on the car's sides. Yes, there was one at Oswego at that time. And if you're superstitious, recall that car's past performances. (laughs) (laughs) poor Roy Murphy a few years ago there was an editor of a popular weekly racing publication who demanded on his paper's front cover the destroying of an expensive sprint car that apparently he felt was jinxed in the span of two racing seasons the car had broken the neck of one driver killed another and severely injured a third Uh, wow 
The first two accidents were the fault of the driver and the third accident attributed to poor maintenance. More on this subject that influences auto racing at a later date. Next week, Pocono Raceway readies for his sec- its second Schaefer 500. I don't know about the superstition thing. I think if you look at the t- even at that moment when John Hill wrote that column, if you look at who was dominating pretty much the 1972 season of Oswego, it was a green car. Just saying. Meet mechanic Fran Madison. A major factor which helps lead Ron Madison to the 1971 Rookie of the Year honors was the fine talent and support given to him by his brother Fran. Fran has served as a head mechanic for the super modified car 80 since Ron started racing early in 1971. Fran lives in Scriba, New York. He's single and is employed as a millwright for the Nestle's Chocolate Company in Fulton. Fran first became interested in racing back in the late 1950s when a neighbor of his owned a sportsman, which competed in a Swiggles Class A division. He started coming to the races and found them to be extremely exciting and since that time has been a steady fan here at Oswego. Frank continually followed the races here and through the super years, his favorite was Gordy Johncock, Nellie Ward, and Nolan Swift. When good friend Dick Jarrett was putting a car on the track, Fran would lend a helping hand, picking up valuable experience of the sport. When brother Ron decided he wanted to go racing and he purchased the 80 from Jarrett, Fran became the number one mechanic on the car. Of course, Ron's current machine is one of the winningest cars on the circuit. It's the former 10 pins of Nolan Swift and driven by several other pilots over the years. In Ron's rookie year, he did an outstanding job and very much deserved the honor bestowed upon him as rookie of the year. Fran does feel they are handicapped a bit with the upright, but states it's a good car that has been proven many times, but it's very old. Fran feels a sleek roadster may be in the making for 1973. He likes to follow the events of the USAC championship circuit and for the last five years has visited the Indianapolis Motor Speedway during the month of May. He keeps up with his favorites, former Oswego drivers, Gordy Johncock and Sammy Sessions. He also claims that he meets some of the finest people in that division, including well-known area fans, Pepe Cohn and Minnie Knight. With the 80 kept in a garage behind his home, Fran claims about 15 to 20 hours each week are spent working on the race car. He and mechanics Dave Stone and Rich Barnes keep the 80 in the finest condition possible. The car is equipped with a small block 350 Chevy. Fran is very happy with Ron's progress and hopes he continues to improve and maybe someday go on to USAC. It's people like Ron and Fran Madison and the entire team with the 80 that have made racing great and will continue to make it better in the future. Our most sincere best wishes to them for a successful career in auto racing. And that concludes the meet the mechanic column. We are going to step aside for a moment. We'll continue with our look back at week number five, program number six of the 1972 Oswego Speedway racing season right after this. Experience the age-old Irish hospitality at LaGroff's Pub and Grill, Oswego's premier local spot to grab a cold one and cheer on your favorite sports teams. Stop in for a nice cold beer alongside some exceptional pub fare. Burgers, wings, chicken sandwiches, Philly cheesesteaks, soups, and more. You want it, they've got it. 
served up with more than 40 years of awesome customer service. Have a friendly game of darts against players from across the world. That's right. Players from across the world. Where else in Oswego can you go to play darts against somebody from across the world? That's crazy. Watch the games on their eight big screen TVs or just relax at Oswego's neighborhood bar and grill. The Groff's Pub, 187 East 10th Street in Oswego. Check them out on LaGroff's.com. We continue with our look back at week number six, race number five of the 1972 Oswego Speedway Supermodified season as we now turn to the Meet the New Driver column. And this week, it is a gentleman named Bill Crosby, one of the most dedicated drivers in the supermodified circuit, sits behind the wheel of the Blue Car 25. He's Bill Crosby of Webster, New York. At 28 years of age, Bill is single and employed as a designer. Bill started his racing career back in 1965, competing in the SCCA, Sports Car Club of America. He drove a real nice Lotus Super 7 and did a very good job in that division. He competed at Watkins Glen and traveled around the circuit, participating in races in Connecticut, Ohio, and Canada, just to mention a few. At the end of 1970, he quit running the sports cars and became very interested in the sleek supermodifieds. Wanting to get a start in the supermodified circuit, Bill purchased a roadster from John Schubert, current owner of Tom Leeson's car 33, which John campaigned here at Oswego with several drivers at the wheel. The car is a former A.J. Watson Roadster, which competed in the USAC Championship Division back in the 1962 through 1964 seasons. When Bill got the car in his garage, he and the crew rebuilt the engine and completely changed the chassis. They installed a big 454 Chevy power plant for the competitive racing events. Bill claims the car still sports the same body panels which were on the car when it ran USAC several years ago. The car is kept in a garage behind Bill's home in Webster, where all the work on the car is done. Bill and his crew, consisting of crew chief Ed Montgomery, Herb Gasserlich, Tom Goodman, and Timothy Lee, spend about four to five hours a night readying the car for the track. They currently have an all-new roadster being planned for the 1973 racing season. Bill and the entire team of the 25 really love the Oswego Oval, saying compared to all the tracks we've been to, Oswego is fantastic. Oswego is the only track they run regularly, but they plan on catching a few shows off and on at Sandusky, Thompson, and possibly Fulton Raceway. For only participating in the supermodified circuit for about a year now, Bill has shown improvement each week and is determined to work away at their inexperience that all the rookie drivers must contend with in order to become one of the best in the circuit. We'd like to wish Bill and the entire crew of the 25 the very best of luck in the supermodified circuit. Hope they'll find competing at Oswego, a very rewarding experience. As we look through some of the pictures here that are in the program, Ron Pern's car 41 with some left front damage after going up and over the 12 of Nick Rowe in a semi-final first lap crash. This was the crash that broke Nick's nose uh, when one of the tires from the Pern car knocked him in the face. Ouch! Bernie Grant's number 17 banged up 
Uh, the front end, especially the right front, after he mixed wills with Johnny Burkholder and hit the fence during the feature. Let's see what else we got in the program here. Okay, more pictures. Norm Mackrit taking the high route around the Ernie June 59 with Jimmy Winks at the wheel. Now that, if you think about it, you know, you, you look back through these programs and it just sort of creates discussion here a little bit. Not to be too long-winded, but you think just where we were at that point, Jimmy Winks was about three years or so into his racing career at Oswego, which I believe he started in Jimmy Sewell's number 32, and I think he was Rookie of the Year in that car. Um, And then um, Jim ended up in the Ernie June 59 and had a couple of different stints in that car. I think there was a short stint in the Little Deuce, or a, I, I should put that differently. His first stint in the Little Deuce came in 1973. And then I think it was either, I think it was the beginning of 74, if I remember correctly, or maybe it was the beginning of 75. The Deuce wasn't ready, so he got back in the 59 car again for a short time. And then I think he, he went back to the Deuce. But um, this is a really interesting picture. And Jim, Jim was always one of those drivers, right, that we felt like, at any moment was going to be the guy and he got close. You could say that his best years were in the deuce and it was just that short sort of 73 to 74 spurt. But, um, you know, he had some strong runs in Doug Duncan's 07. Um, just a driver that you knew. I mean, he, he could win on the dirt. He could win in a dirt modified, a dirt sprint car and asphalt modified. He could win in a super. I mean, just uh, very interesting. Below that is a picture of the new Brian Osgood 09. And there's another driver from the southern tier of New York State who ran both supers and modifieds and um, showed plenty of speed in both. He didn't have a lot of luck in the supers. He also ended up driving for Bob and Ernie June for a short time in the earlier 70s, 74, 75 area. Um Picture on the bottom is the Flying Five, Tukes Mariano Parts, car of Don McLaren leading a side-by-side battle between Jimmy Champagne and the seven, Max Dowker seven of Johnny Logan, another driver from Charlotte, Michigan, who made a huge impact at Oswego in the early 60s when the Supers were first coming to the Speedway and kind of just stayed with it off and on. And in the 70s had... Almost, um, I don't know if I should call it a renaissance, but had some really good success in the Max Dowker 7 uh, that he was driving in 72, but then ended up in the 35 car for uh, George Keenan and Tom Addy a couple of years later and had great success in that car uh, up until his retirement from supermodified racing, which I think happened either at the end of 1979 or maybe it was 1980. I can't remember, but it was later in the 70s. Centerfold, this uh, program, was a nice black and white shot head-on of Kempton Dates pulling into the uh, third-term pick gate, the 37 of uh, Jim Muldoon. No, that, that wasn't Jimmy at that time. That would have been... Uh, who Freddie Graves in 1972 is kind of behind him. I don't know if Freddie's coming in as well. We uh, 
we don't see that there. Okay, so uh, next set of photos, Bill Crosby escapes his red hot number 25 after he blew the engine in the Concy. Middle picture is Ray Sand with some front-end damage on the Steve Miller number 16 after uh, slamming the wall, the front stretch. And, well, we were talking about superstition a little while ago. Here's a picture of the Shamrock 13, the green Shamrock 13. Mark Letcher took Irish Jack Murphy's car 13 out for a quick warm-up, wound up hitting the wall in the backstretch. Oopsie. Not what you want to do when you're taking somebody's car out to hot lap it for him and try and help him with setup. Um, driver's better half, Sally Gray. Now, here's an interesting driver's better half. Sally was a wife who not only was extremely supportive of Jim Gray's racing, of her husband's racing, but Sally, if given the opportunity, probably would have raced herself. She was that into it. So let's uh, read through this. Of all the driver's wives in the supermodified circuit, very few have the enthusiasm, devotion, and knowledge of the sport that Sally Gray has. Sal naturally is the better half of Jim Gray, pilot of the Roadster number 31. Sally has practically been brought up in racing. Her father was Bill Himple, who owned a stock car that competed at Oswego back in the early 1950s. Even when her father <laughs> retired from the sport, Sally continued to follow the racing. In fact, it was at the racetrack where Sally met Jim. After they were married, they lived in Toronto a few years and caught a few races around the Ontario Ovals and occasionally came to race at Oswego. In July of 1969, they moved to Oswego, built a home on the City Line Road just east of the Speedway Grounds. Since that time, Jim has been a steady competitor here at the track. When asked what her hobbies were, Sally replied that racing was her number one hobby. She does get out to the ice rinks over the winter to do some skating and participates in league bowling. By the way, she happens to be a very good bowler. There were a number of Oswego Speedway folk who were very good bowlers. Bowler Bowling in Oswego at that time, and probably to a degree still, is uh, the wintertime sport in Oswego. When you're not racing, you're bowling. There's not a whole lot else to do in the winter in Oswego, New York. Jim and Sally occasionally catch a Syracuse Blazer hockey game over the winter months, and being so hockey-inclined, mainly because Jim is from Canada, both Jim and some Michael are involved with the hockey programs here in Oswego. Of course, Sally and daughter Stacy are always on the sidelines to cheer their boys on. In her remaining free time, Sally likes to sew and knit, and above all, to help Jim with the race car. Sally claims a typical Saturday around the Gray residence is very, very busy. Jim is up early, putting the final touches on the 31 to prepare it for racing, and when fans start dropping in to visit, Sally plays the role of hostess. It is never unusual to find their driveway full of cars, especially on a race day. Before Jim leaves for the track, though, Sally polishes the car and takes over all of the last-minute details. Many times, Sally has said she would love to race, but her husband pretty much discourages her. Back then, women in racing wasn't like it, it, it is now. 
Jim feels it would be fine for women to race against women, but not against men. <laughs> Sally pretty much agrees with her husband's philosophy. Come on, Sally. Good thing Janet Guthrie didn't. That's all I'll say. She has always been fully behind her husband's part in racing and thoroughly understands the long hours and high expenses needed in putting a car on the track. Above all, she enjoys the races as much as her husband and is always there in the grandstand to root him on. Jim and Sally are both very proud to be part of the Oswego Speedway supermodified scene. And we at Oswego are very fortunate to have such fine individuals as the Grays among our racing fraternity. Next page. How keen is your memory? Two pictures here. Picture on the left is a picture of Jack Greedy and Jim Champagne. And this picture is captioned by this. It was 1969 and Jack Greedy led the feature until the very end. But Jim Champagne pulled up alongside at the checkered and it was a photo finish in the first tie in Speedway history. I think it's been the only tie in Speedway history, if I remember correctly. Picture on the right. Oh, this doesn't look good. It was 1969 during a warm-up session. While Bill Edwards, driving the former, former Virgo Car 23, now numbered 49, lost his steering wheel while coming down the front chute. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's... That's not something you want to have happen in a swiggle. Even back in 1969, they were going fast enough. You didn't, you don't know. Losing a steering wheel is not a good thing. A terrible spill resulted. Today, Bill is associated with a major university and a teaching position and has retired from racing. Wow. Yeah, that would make me think twice. Okay. Underneath that, in the middle, testing your memory. This is basically a quiz. Now, you know how this works. If you've heard these rewind shows before, the way that it lays out in the program, they list the 10 questions and then below it, but upside down are the 10 answers. I have an ability to read upside down, believe it or not, without standing on my head. So um, I'm going to read each question, give you a couple seconds to think of the answer, and then I'll give it to you. I don't have the Jeopardy, final Jeopardy theme. I'm sorry. So we'll do the best we can without it. Here we go. Question number one. These two brothers have each owned a race car that has competed at the Swiggo since the track opened in 1951. Who are they? Answer. Nick Virgo, 23, and Sam Virgo, 47, both from Oswego. So there you go. Remember, this is from 1972, these questions. Question two. This driver hails from Amherst, New Hampshire. Who is he? Now, if you'd asked me this without me seeing the answer, I would have known because by the time I started going to the track, I believe in 1973, he'd already moved to Fulton, New York. The answer is... Denny Wheeler, pilot of the Purple Roadster, number 96. Question three. Now, I definitely would have known this one. This driver's wife's name is Leona. Who is he? Jimmy Champagne. Question four. 
who was known as the Bardall Man from Olean. Now, we just don't have nicknames like that in the sport anymore. The Bardall Man from Olean. Who was he? The answer, Bud Johnson, who drove as number 12. Question five. Who won the opening day feature in 1965? Who won the opening day feature in 1965? Answer, Art Bennett, pilot of the white number 151. I think that was bingo 151, wasn't it? Question seven. He drove the famous yellow number three back in the stock car days. Who was he and where did he live? He drove the famous yellow number three back in the stock car days. Who was he and where did he live? Answer, Ed Bellinger of Fulton, New York, who would come to be known right around the time that I'm reading this program or that this program was put out, wasn't too far from Ed Bellinger Jr.'s debut. So he would become known as Ed Bellinger Sr., Question number eight. He drove the Nick Virgo car number 23 in the last half of the 1968 racing season. Boy, this one gets picky, doesn't it? Question eight. He drove the Nick Virgo car 23 the last half of the 1968 racing season. Who was he? Answer. Johnny Burkholder. Of Toronto, Ontario. I did not know that. Never knew Johnny drove the 23. Question number nine. This driver won his first feature ever at Oswego in the 1966 season when he won the full championship race. Who was he? Won his first feature ever at Oswego in the 1966 season when he won the fall championship race. Who was he? The Flying Fisherman, Bentley Warren, in the Little Deuce. And the final question, question number 10. They drove the Rutledge Rockets in the 1969 racing season. Who were they? Now, those of you who are around then, you've got to remember this. They drove the Rutledge Rockets in the 1969 racing season. Who were they? I would get this, and I was barely even born. Answer, Johnny Clapham in the 45 and Warren Conium in the number 46. Okay. Now, we have the big question. I love this. If you were given the task, this is asked of the drivers, If you were given the task of distributing an extra $300 in the purse, where would you put it and why? Here we go. Denny Wheeler, at the end of the field, for those who don't finish as well, that's where it's needed the most. Yay, I agree. Ron Buckner, top 12 or so, so the guys that are running hard can benefit more than those just making the show. Bad Ron, bad Ron. Come on now. 
Nick Rowe, I'd spread it from the sixth spot on down. Warren Conium, put it back to the first six spots. Draw more cars by spreading it back through the field. Um, I'm not sure what uh, he, it almost felt like he contradicted himself there. <laughs> not sure. Red Barnhart, gee, I don't know. I haven't even studied it this year. Ron Madison in the middle and the back because these guys need the money more than the front runners. Kempton dates somewhere between 10th and 24th. It costs just as much for them to race as others. Jim Champagne, first five places because they're the guys spending the most on their equipment. No, no, no. Come on, Jimmy. <sighs> Mark Letcher, I <laughs> leave it to Mark. This is this is so typical of Mark Letcher. I'm going to read the question again, and I'm going to read Mark's answer. If you were given the task of distributing an extra $300 in the purse, where would you put it and why? Mark Letcher, every class needs a clown, right? So here's Mark Letcher's response. I'd put it on booze and women because I love booze and women. <laughs> oh, man. Jim Gray, somewhere around six spot. Jim Winks, I put it to the back. The guys in the back need the money to buy better parts to go faster and put on a better show. Yes, Jimmy Champagne, see? <sighs> Bruce Kraft, fifth on back. Draw more cars from Ohio and Indiana. Well, that okay, that's interesting. Travel money. John Logan, put it toward the tail end so the little men can afford to run. I love it. Ken Andrews, I give it to second place because second place looks sick compared to first. I don't know that means but i think he's trying to say second place is the first loser um i don't know irish jack murphy put it in the top 10 places but i wouldn't put any in first it's good the way it is strengthen from second on down bobby stelter put more money in the pack than front i like it baldy baker i'd put put on back down the line i guess he's saying put it toward the back uh Bob Joe Doyne, toe money. There you go. Doug Sire between second and sixth. More into second so the loser wouldn't feel so bad. Now, see, there's a little nicer way of saying it. Johnny Burkholder, the bottom end of the field so the guys who didn't do as well can at least help pay expenses. Yes. Ronnie Wallace toward the back end. Yes. Nolan Swift, you'd know where I'd put it. I'm not sure where where, where, where Nolan put it. Would he put it in front because he wins a lot, or I'm not sure. Um, Bob Seelman can't run a show by putting all the money on top. You need the money down through the field. I say I agree with that. I just uh, think the e the more money you put at the end, the easier it is for more people to afford to come and race. Says Red Barnhart, this is the you don't say page. The again, if you're not familiar. You don't say this is a page full of candid shots from the pits. Drivers talking to people, crew people talking to drivers, drivers in their cars, uh, whatever. Okay. With captions that are supposed to be funny. Sometimes they are funny. Sometimes it was a nice try. So here is a picture of Red Barnhart with a huge, as if he's laughing, basically with a couple of uh, folks in cowboy hats. Says Red Barnhart, sorry, guys, you can't have my autograph until I win a feature. Ooh, boy, 
I'm not sure that any, they would have gotten an autograph for the rest of the time he raced at a swinger because I'm not sure he won uh, anything after 72. Here's a picture of Bob Stelter in the 10 pins, Nolan Swift looking into the cockpit and someone sort of squatting down in front of Nolan at the side of the left side of the car, looking maybe at the motor. Says Nolan Swift to Bob Stelter. Now open your eyes and watch where you're driving. (laughs) Ouch. And, oh, here we go. Here we go. Now this was somebody, somebody would have gotten a cookie from me for this one. Remember I read earlier that Mark Letcher took Jack Murphy's 13 out and crashed it. Okay. So here's a picture of Mark on the left and Jack on the right sort of standing with their hands on the tail section of the car. Now, we don't know if this is before. Looks like it's, well, it could be either. But I guess it was before he got in it. Says Jack Murphy to Mark Letcher. Oh, no, it was after. Says Jack Murphy to Mark Letcher. Tell me, Mark, how does it handle? (laughs) Not very good, apparently. Okay, next page. By the way, I have to point out that I love, in these older programs from this season, the Parish Oil Company full-page ad because it is Mark Donahue, big picture of Mark Donahue with a headshot and a car shot of the Sunoco special. That that car was absolutely amazing to look at, and it ran pretty good, too. Uh, for those who don't know Parish Oil, Uh, was the Northern New York Sunoco race fuel distributor at that time. We continue now expressing your views. Oh, here we go. this, um, This was basically a letters to the editor column from the fans. So whenever, you know, They would get fan letters. They would often print them and answer them in the program. So here we go. And this will take a bit because this is a fairly lengthy letter. This person was apparently pretty steamed up. To the management. Hurrah for an angry fan. In quotes, an angry fan. That must have been a previous expressing your views letter. It's about time someone expressed how a lot of the fans feel. I'm sure there are a lot more fans who agree with this fan rather than with, quote, a fan, end quote. It most certainly does does not show immaturity and lack of understanding just because the people express the way they feel is unfair to a driver. There have been a good many times when a car has gone into the pits and, quote, Mr. Bacon, that would be starter Norm Bacon, end quote, has patiently waited for their return. Perhaps it was because that certain car had traveled quite a distance and Mr. Caruso figured that they brought their fans with them. Big deal. <laughs> Every one of these drivers and crews worked dang hard to get where they are, and now it is not fair to show favoritism. Champagne's crew was not still frantically working on his cars. The push truck was already pushing him on his way out to the track. Perhaps the management figured the eight ball, quote, end quote, had had enough wins, and with him out of it, it would give someone else a chance. <laughs> the seats are old and rotting. Oh, here we go. See, he, this, this, this writer's on the roll here. Um, now he's onto the seats. 
I wonder if he'll complain about the track coffee at any point in this. The seats are old and rotting. There have been a good many times I felt like turning around and slugging the person in back of me because they keep ramming their knees into my back because the seats are too narrow. So let's see. Just to recap, the seats are old, rotting, and narrow. It sure isn't because I'm fat, as I only weigh 90 pounds and I don't take up much room. Why can't something be done about these seats with Mr. Caruso's money during the time the track is closed? (laughs) Another thing was the twin 50s. Okay, now we're... (laughs) He had a lot to get off his chest here. This is known as venting, by the way. Another thing was the twin 50s, at which time the bottom five rows were general admission, which everyone tried to get. Very few people paid for their reserve seats. Upon seeing them empty, they sat in them. If more people had bought reserve seats, they wouldn't have to move, but very few did, so they sat there throughout the entire show without paying extra. Do you call that fair? Last year, we came down three hours early and waited in line to get to see the International Classic. When we did get in, people had snuck in early through the pit in other ways and had saved the good general admission seats. Perhaps they had connections. Who knows? We have been coming to your races for the past 12 years and will probably continue to scrimp so we can have only a few hours of enjoyment. But we do feel some of your rules are made to fit your favorites. I wonder who he thought their favorites were. If your prices continue to rise, we, among others, will have to forget our Saturday night at the Oswego Speedway. We, among a lot of others, hate to see the retirement of Nolan Swift. All of his fans feel that he is one of the greatest drivers to ever accomplish as much as he did in his years of racing. Good luck. Oh, wait. Okay, so we got we did get some positive out of this letter. He's all the venting, and now we get to the good stuff. Good luck to Bob Stelder in making the 10 pins win so many races as you, Mr. Swift, did and make you as proud of Bob as all of us are of you. Good luck and thank God you were never seriously hurt. (laughs) Signed, another fan, in quotes. (laughs) And then there's a PS. This is great. I hope the management prints this and answers some of my questions as you did not answer, quote, a angry fan, end quote. Well, here comes his answer. Dear, quote, another fan, end quote. As far as the champagne incident is concerned, I think we're whipping a dead horse. It's over. It's settled. Let's forget it. Now, about our terrible seats. A regular maintenance check and replacement of grandstand seats is carried on throughout the season. Most of the work on the grandstand is done in the fall when there is sufficient time. The stands are also painted in the fall to ensure that the seats dry thoroughly or else we'll get complaints from people getting paint all over them. In any case, whatever we do, we get complaints. So for the rest of the season, I would suggest that, quote, another fan and, quote, buy a cushion chair with a back on it and bring it every Saturday. As far as the reserve seating is concerned, you do have two good points. And right offhand, we don't have answers to solve them. Now, I will just say this, okay? If, in my opinion, if you're buying a pit pass, which does entitle you, or at least it always has, as far as I know, to a general admission seat, in the grandstand, 
I see nothing wrong with reserving a seat in the grandstand because you want to make sure you get a seat because you paid extra for the pit pass, which is more expensive than the general admission seat. So to me, I'm not sure that's really an issue, but um, the fact that you get to the grandstand beforehand, I mean, if you're going to save an entire row, I suppose that's probably not great, but you're just saving a seat or two. I don't see any big deal with that. Official point standings for the 1972 season after race five were the 93 of Baldy Baker, who was on the cover, 332 points. Second, the eight of Jim Champagne, 317. We know what he did the next week after this program. He went out lap the field. Third was the five of Don McLaren, 299 points. Fourth was the, says four, it should be 40, of Norm Macra, 251. Fifth was the 37 of Fred Graves, 208. Sixth, the 28 of Kemp Dates, 135. Seventh was the 72 of Doug Sire, 132. Eighth, the 55 of Ken Andrews, 127. Ninth, the 19 of Jim Cheney, 114. And 10th was the 10 of Bobby Stelder at 98 points. And if you're wondering how can Bob have 98 points in the 10 when he hadn't even gotten a race in with it yet, it's because if you'll recall, if a driver drives a car to start the season and changes cars midway through all they do as far as the points are concerned because the driver points is they just change the car number that is assigned to the driver and the points so they knew he was going to drive the 10 and i can't remember i think he started in the 04 in 72 perhaps or maybe it was the austin brothers 71 i'm not sure but um he had accumulated those points before he actually started racing the 10 so he was in the top 10 I'll just read the uh, rest of them. 11th, the 03 of Ali Silva. 12th, the 99, Jeff Bodine. That was the rear engine car that he had, the old Indy rear engine. 13th, the 17, Bernie Grant. 14th, 59, Jim Winks. 15th, 87, Bruce Kraft. 16th, the 80 of Ronnie Madison. 17th, the 7 of Johnny Logan. 18th, the 4 of Tom Rose. 19th, the 96, Dan Wheeler. 20th, the 31, Jim Gray. 21st, the 44, Daryl Peckham. 22nd, the 0, Todd Gibson. 23rd, the 85, Russ Gray. 24th, the 74, Bob Seelman. 25th, the 79, Harold Brown. 26th, the 13, Jack Murphy. And 27th, the 23 of Jim Muldoon. Back with more in a moment. Okay, folks, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors here in Inside Groove, Indie Performance Composites. They're a premier composite design and manufacturing company creating performance parts and solutions for the automotive, aerospace, and communications industries. Jeff West and his team are amazing. They do all kinds of work in the motorsports industry from dirt tracks to NASCAR to IndyCar, supermodifieds. It doesn't matter. If you've got something that you need designed or fabricated, let them help you transform your idea, your vision, and your budget into a workable, high-performance solution. They have all kinds of services from 3D printing to finishing services. End-to-end composite solutions is what they are. Check them out, ipcindy.com or indieperformancecompositesinc.com and tell them 
that the folks from Inside Groove sent you. As we get ready to wrap up this review of week number six, actually race week number five of the 1972 season, we get to the back of the program and the article about the cover boy, Baldy Baker. One of the finest super modified drivers going also happens to be one of the most popular personalities around the ovals. He's Roland Baldy Baker. How many people would have been able to kind of roll that off their tongue? If the question was, what was Baldy Baker's real first name? How many of you would have known that offhand? It was Roland, pilot of the sleek blue car number 93. I, I don't know how Baldy got Baldy, actually. How did that nickname come about? I'm looking at Baldy, and I'm more Baldy Baker than he he, he was in 1972. <laughs> Something, something's wrong with this picture. Baldy's got plenty of hair. Baldy and his enthusiastic wife, Gladys, live in Stroudsburg, Ohio, with their son, Roland Jr., who is 11. They also have one daughter, Bonnie, who is married. During the week, Baldy's employed as a heavy equipment operator. Baldy's very colorful career started back in 1948 when he drove a modified around his hometown ovals. Right from the very start, he proved to be a real hard charger with plenty of talent to be a winner. And what a winner he was. We asked Baldy just how many features he thought he has won, and he replied, gosh, I really don't know. There's been plenty. I do know I've won over 300 trophies in my career. Holy cow. And he had about, uh, what, six or seven more years of racing still ahead of him. Baldy is one of the drivers who have witnessed while competing the change from the modified racer to the upright super mod to the now low-line super sleek roadsters and rear engines. He's very proud of the progress of a race car over the years. When Baldy was going through high school, he always took an interest in sports, although he seldom competed. He did play basketball and, from what we've been told, played the sport extremely well. He was always fond of auto racing, and he looked forward to the day when he could race. At 21 years of age, he drove his first race, and since that time, racing has been his number one sport. Baldy's favorite color is red and white, with his favorite television show being the Red Skelton Show. How many of you remember Red Skelton? Think Clem Cadiddlehopper. Okay. Red was awesome. Such a good comedian. Asked what his greatest moment in his racing career was, Baldy said, when I started winning at Oswego this year, he quickly added, there have been too many great moments around the tracks. He feels that his son may someday follow in his footsteps, and he talks about racing already. Interesting. I wonder, did Baldy Baker Jr. ever actually race? Maybe somebody can uh, drop that in the comments, because I'm not sure. That's interesting. His wife, Gladys, is Baldy's number one fan in the grandstand. She really loves racing as much as him. Baldy claims all the guys in the super modified circuit are great, but his own favorites include Nick Rowe, parentheses, his longtime sidekick, and parentheses, Norm Macrath and Jimmy Champagne. Now, let's stop right there for just a second, okay? Because what would one of these rewind shows be without dropping a little bit of color into the show? Let's think about this for a minute. In 1972, the supermodified driver fraternity was a little different than it is now. I don't want to go negative here, but just observationally, the drivers were a lot closer back then. They socialized together a lot more. And of course, what was Baldy Baker known for? <laughs> 
drinking Budweiser beer, right? They presented him with a Budweiser helmet one year during the pre-classic festivities, if I remember right. He was, I think he was still racing at that time. Um, and Nick Rowe earlier in this episode, I talked about how <laughs> Nick said he's come out of bars with worse injuries than his broken nose. <laughs> so <laughs> Baldy and Nick, I mean, you just draw the picture, right? Throw in Norm Macrath, who enjoyed, uh, an adult beverage or two and Jimmy Champagne, who didn't. Jimmy was not a big drinker for what I know. Just an interesting thing to think about. I mean, there's all these stories about drivers, what they did after the track, after the races were over. You know, I've heard stories about Nolan and Baldy. I think it was Nolan and Baldy. Nolan and somebody, pretty sure it was Baldy, taking over the bar at the Colonial House. I don't know if that's true, but they're legends and they're fun to talk about. You know, you, you, you did a lot of uh, that back then. Back to the article. This year, Baldy's having his finest season ever. At the current time, he leads both the Oswego and Sandusky point standings and has won three features to date at Sandusky while bagging two big mains here at Oswego. Baldy's got himself one mighty fine ride. The roads to number 93 is owned by three men, Gary Miles, P.J. Wiseman, and Keith Barker. The 93 is a former Watson Roadster that competed in the USAC Championship Division in the mid-1960s. It's equipped with a big 427 Chevy and is one of the finest-looking cars in the circuit. They are running a Swiggo and Sandusky regularly and plan on catching some special shows throughout the Northeast. The combination of Baldy Baker and the Blue 93 have proven to be very successful so far this year, and there is no doubt in our minds that this great team will continue to place well in competition for years to come. At 45 years of age and some 24 years of racing experience to his name, Baldy Baker is right where he belongs on top. End of article. And that's basically it for that particular program. Nice head-on shot of the Blue 93 on the cover of that particular book. Again, that was the sixth uh, edition volume six, if you will, of the program that year, recapping where we were after five features run, five weeks of racing at the Oswego Speedway. And again, we mentioned Ron Pern earlier, and I want to touch on this for a bit. For those who don't know, Ron Pern's son is Cole Pern. Cole was the NASCAR championship winning crew chief for Martin Truex when they were driving the furniture row racing or, or uh, working for furniture row racing in the 78 and also the uh, 19 of uh, Joe Gibbs racing Cole came over with uh, Martin to that car and Cole has had a really, really good career. And so it's interesting to think about the fact that Cole's father was Ron Pern, who actually raced a super modified. They were from Canada. Um, and so the, you can sort of trace a lot of, uh, super modified folks to, to NASCAR country over the years. You know, we could spend again, probably spend at least one show talking about that. All the folks from, from Oswego who are down here in the Carolina area, North Carolina area, and who have, who have accomplished 
you know, things in NASCAR, big crew chiefs and such. There were, I know both Fred and Ron Graves, I believe, were crew chiefs. I know Fred was. He won a championship uh, in the truck series, one of the first championships in the truck series, working for Dale Earnhardt with Ron Hornaday driving the car. That was the old 16, I think it was Napa, that was sponsoring the car at that time. Fred was the crew chief on that car. So um, numbers of people, um, I, I could start rattling them off out of my head, but I'd never get them all. <laughs> so it's uh, it's really interesting to think about, but um, I don't know that too many people know about Colpern's sort of indirect connection to the Oswego Speedway. And it was because his father, Ron, had uh, a few races there in 1972. And that is the way it was. After five weeks of competition in 1972 at the Oswego Speedway, I want to take the time to thank our sponsors for the Inside Groove shows, LaGroff's Pub, and of course, don't forget, Skip's Fish Fry still has the um, mobile truck, if you will, food truck, and that will be uh, out and about quite a bit over the course of the summer, and uh, Skip's is still going to be present at the Oswego Speedway in the infield concession, and... They will be at Super Dirt Week as well. That's already been confirmed. And want to also thank Jeff West and the folks from IPC Indy. Indy Performance Composites, if you need anything fabricated, they can do it. Just go to ipcindy.com and check them out. And, of course, I don't want to leave out Rich Worth and the folks of JNS Paving. If you need paving done of any kind when it comes to blacktop, he is the Beethoven a black top, give Rich Worth a call and support him because he surely supports super modified racing of all types and styles. And of course, um, the wrencher Robbie Worth is uh, Rich's son and will be running in the 350 super modified division this season at the Oswego Speedway. Okay. That will wrap things up for this edition of 1972 season rewind at the Oswego Speedway until the next inside groove show. I'm Tom Baker. Thanks for listening. So long. You've been listening to Inside Groove, powered by IPC Indy, creating performance parts and solutions for the automotive, aerospace, and communications industries. Find them on the web at www.ipcindy.com. Now, part of this show may be reproduced in any manner without the expressed written consent of Race Chaser Media. Thank you for listening.